It's, it's as if all the philosophers went on strike and nobody's thinking about their life anymore. And now we're in this cultural mess. And it's like, someone, please talk to the philosophers union, get these guys to come back and get them to start like helping people think about their lives in a more critical way. So how do you determine what success looks like to you? Do you base it on the results and outcomes or on what you've learned along the way? You see, society has conditioned us to tie success to an outcome. But the truth is, failure is an essential part of success. The faster you fail, the faster you will succeed. So the real question is, how can we redefine our relationship with not just failure, but with success as well? Join us to find the answers that will allow you to live a life that's true to yourself and find the clarity you need to make that life a reality. I'm your host, King Lau, and you're listening to the Plan to Fail podcast. What's going on, everybody? It's King here, and I want to welcome you all back to another episode of the Plan to Fail podcast. Today, I have Noel Bagwell. Noel is an award-winning attorney, founder of Executive LP, and the creator of Profit from Legal. He works with businesses to transform their legal support from a cost center to a profit engine. He is the author of How to Structure Your Business for Success and the upcoming book, Profit from Legal. And on top of all of that, Noel is also a host of the Profit from Legal podcast. As an expert on preventative law for small businesses, Noel is the guy you call to keep your risks from becoming problems or your problems from becoming crises. First and foremost, Noel, I really want to welcome you onto the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, having recently only met you, I was actually really intrigued by the work you do, not like just helping entrepreneurs like shift their perspective on how their legal support can be a profit center, but you also provide your clients the framework to make that goal a reality. But honestly, before we get too far into it, I want to give our audience a chance to get to know you better. So would you be able to kind of share a little bit about your background and how you got here? Sure. Uh, so I've been practicing law for almost 10 years. Um, I was a little bit late to the law. I, I sort of ran from it. I come from a family of lawyers. So uh, I did some other things and then finally just kind of gave in, went to law school. Um, I grew up with a certain set of skills, to borrow the words of Liam Neeson. Um, and those skills are just really well employed in the legal profession. So uh, I think you should do what you're good at. And what I'm good at led me to practicing law. It really wasn't my passion. My passion is entrepreneurship and, and business. But I sort of woke up to this realization that I could do both, that I could be an entrepreneur and use the law as my medium. You know, that's just the, the service or product being sold. And so I could really do both. I didn't have to choose. So I opened my practice back in um, 2012. It was a general practice firm, the first one. And I was just really miserable with that. So I was taking kind of whatever came in the door. But among all of those cases were some small business clients. And I, I thought, why is this even a lawsuit? Like, why are you guys going to court over this, this stuff? Why didn't you just hire a lawyer in the first place and prevent these you know, things from getting out of control and becoming lawsuits? And it was out of that early questioning that Executive LP was born. We started asking a really important question, which is, if I was a small business owner or a startup, what would I want my relationship with my lawyer to look like? And 
building everything in our practice around the answer to that question has just been a game changer. Uh, we really now have structured incentives between the attorney and the client so that the client will call us early and often and, and let us have the involvement in their business that's required to prevent their risks from becoming problems or their problems from turning into full-blown crises. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's super important because a lot of businesses, and that's me included, in the early stages, they it's this whole perception that the legal, like you know, the legal um, um, industry is just a money sink, right? It's just like I don't call a lawyer until I need one because, uh, you know, the billable hours I don't have that money. I rather reinvest that money into marketing or whatever it is. Um, but it, you know, I think a lot of it, it's really cool what you do because it's all about education. It's always about making you know your clients more aware of what they need, and the client doesn't always know what they need. Um, but like, you know, like, I, I'm just more curious, I want uh, our listeners to kind of, before we jump into the legal stuff, it, like a more background on uh, your journey, because you, you did bring up that, you know, you saw yourself as an entrepreneur first, right? You, you weren't, your passion was never really legal. And, um, you know, the, the amount of shifts and the pivots you've had to make along the way from deciding to go into legal, realizing your first practice, you know, it was, <laughs> didn't make you happy. And then shifting to see the need um, of the industry, of your clients you were working with, and doing something that you actually felt good and actually brought you a sense of fulfillment. Can you kind of, you know, like talk about like the hard decisions, the lessons you've learned along the way? Yeah, I guess it goes back a little further. I mean, I don't want to sit here and tell my whole story because it would take a long time. But the long and the short of it is, um, growing up, my family was pretty well off, but my dad was an amazing lawyer. And when I was young, he was not that great of a businessman. And you can be really, really good at what you do and bad at the business of what you do. That's a really important distinction to make. And I think a lot of people starting a, a company, a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't make that distinction. They think that if they're good at what they do, they'll be good in the business of what they do. And that's just not true. And my dad's a perfect example of that. He was president of the Tennessee Trial Lawyers Association a couple of years, and he was just a really successful lawyer. Um, but he made some bad business decisions, some bad hiring decisions and things. And ultimately, that cost us everything. I mean, my family lost everything. So I, I guess in reaction to that, consciously or subconsciously, I wanted to go and like learn about business and learn how to keep that from happening again. And so I started out in college as a business administration and computer science double major. And, but I wasn't happy really in my life at that point either. I guess being, being happy in my life sounds like a, a, an elusive thing. Uh, uh, that seems to be a theme. Um, but it's not really about that. I, I was started looking for reasons to live, like reasons to continue to exist, reasons, the, the big questions of life, right? And I was just questioning all of this. I think a lot of people do that in college, but I, I did it to kind of almost an absurd degree and ended up with a degree in philosophy. And uh, incidentally, Bruce Lee had a degree in philosophy and he has one of the all-time best philosophy uh, program quotes ever. Someone asked him in an interview, what, what can you do with a degree in philosophy? And Bruce Lee said, you can think deep thoughts about being unemployed. <laughs> I was like, that's great. That's, that's excellent. So that's my future now. And I actually just emailed the head of the philosophy department at the university I attended. And we were talking about some other things. And he said, it's always nice to see that, you know, graduates from the philosophy program are gainfully employed. And that made me chuckle a little bit. Um, but I went on to seminary and uh, was there for about a year, realized I just didn't have 
what it took to be a, a minister in terms of just empathy and other things. It was just really, it's, you really have to be with people in the hardest parts of their lives and really invest so much of yourself in there. And I think at that point in my life, I just didn't have enough of myself to make that investment in others. But I did have this passion for doing things that other people valued highly and solving their problems. I wanted to help um, help them, which is why I went to seminary in the first place. I wanted to help kind of make people the best versions of themselves. And after I left there, I just knocked around for a couple of years. I worked in luxury property management in North Carolina, in uh, Cary, North Carolina, for a couple of years, and then ultimately decided, you know what, if I'm ever going to really be useful to other people and do well in life, I need to leverage my skill set. So what are my skills? You know, I'm, I'm good at problem solving. I'm good at issue spotting. I'm good at um, making rational arguments. I'm good, you know, had the philosophy background, all the logic training, that really helps. Um, and then, you know, just I love solving problems and helping to manage relationships with other people. So psychology was something I was considering, but the law, you know, I just my family had such a background in law, come from a family of lawyers that that seemed like a really natural fit for me. So I applied to, to law school. And when I was there, this wonderful professor, Tom Stone, took me under his wing and he had a Ph.D. in economics from University of Chicago. And he really like drilled into me as kind of a protege, if I can be bold enough to call myself his protege, um, uh, all of the lessons that he had learned about the intersection of philosophy and economics. And so I booked his economic analysis of law class. I got the highest grade in that class and, and really made that the thrust of my study in law school. It took all the really difficult business law classes like securities regulation and corporate finance and all the uniform commercial code stuff, the stuff that you don't take to pad your GPA. You take it so that you'll know that stuff when you get in practice and, and be able to serve as general counsel for, for a business. So I, I took all the brutal classes and graduated about a semester early, took the bar in uh, February of 2012, hung my shingle right away. Um, I had a job offer from another attorney, but it just seemed like hanging my shingle was a better choice for me at that point. And um, he's a great guy. I love him, by the way. And he's just a, a fantastic person. Uh, I refer business to him pretty regularly, but I uh, just wanted to get out on my own and do my thing. Uh, that passion for entrepreneurship surfacing. And uh, ever since then, it's just been sort of this journey of, you know, what is going to be fulfilling? What is going to let me use my skill set for the, for the good of other people? What is going to help me solve a meaningful problem in the universe? And really, these are questions that every entrepreneur grapples with. I mean, that really is the, the fundamental question for every entrepreneur is what meaningful problem in the universe can I solve? And where is the overlap between a problem that I can solve, people that I enjoy working with, and people that will pay me to solve the problem? And where those three circles overlap in sort of a Venn diagram, that's that's your ideal customer. That's your ideal market. That's the thing that you should be doing. That's your nexus of activity. And um, for me, that is businesses that are doing well and want to grow, um, or if people have a really solid idea and they want to help start it and, and start a growth-focused business, then you know I can help with business formation. But really, um, the, where the rubber meets the road for me is in finding businesses that are already doing well and want to do amazing things and scale up, and they want to use legal services to make their business more profitable, more resilient, and less stressful to run. And uh, I've just found a, a niche in doing that. It's a pretty small niche, but it's a valuable and important one. And, and I see 
big results for my clients when I do what I do. So that that's just personally very gratifying to me. Wow, I said I wasn't going to tell my whole story, but there it is. I mean, that's that's most of it. And I'm I'm glad you did really because it, it's it's so cool seeing you like the different shifts. And I think that's the, like you know part of me really likes interviewing people at least part if not their full story, part of their story because it's so unique to each and every one of um, us. And, you know, like, especially in the world of online entrepreneurship, there's so much focus on like, I'll follow this one framework and it fits all. And it's actually crazy. It's, it's, it's really cool that uh, you, you majored in uh, philosophy because I've always had this conversation with myself because I went to uh, my undergrad, I did criminology because I wanted to go into criminal law thinking that that was, uh, that, that was my future. Um, but little did I know, like I, looking back every day, every time I look back at that time I was in school, I wish I majored in philosophy because out of my, th- I dropped out after my th- third year, but out of the three years I was in my undergrad, uh, it was a philosophy course that changed my life. It was morals and ethics. And that was the first one when I learned about like ethnocentrism and how like, you know, what is right and what is wrong like that. It wasn't like the right or wrong that changed my life, but the perspective shift and like how like the way you view things. I think that was the first time I was able to shift my perspective on something and not just take it as a given because, oh, the, the world works this way because that's how it works. And I honestly, to this day, feel like um, philosophy is a better major for entrepreneurs and business. I've always, I always laughed at the whole idea because business, they teach you these frameworks and you're supposed to run business in one way or another. But that's not, as you know, that's not how entrepreneurship works, right? It's really about thinking deeply and solving problems. You know, Aristotle said that it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And that is a an almost lost skill. Um, I, I think you're right about philosophy. I think it is a better preparation for life and for entrepreneurship than, um, than most business degrees. Now, that's not to say that you don't need the, the business background, but I, I really feel like the business education piece is something that a responsible entrepreneur will commit themselves to as part of their lifelong journey of learning like you're always learning you've never found the answer because there isn't one there are just better ways of doing things and philosophy is great because it teaches you mental discipline it teaches you about logic about using logic to solve problems how to think how to do critical analysis how to separate ideas out and really Avoid thinking traps like committing logical fallacies, um, avoiding cognitive biases, and it's those thinking traps that cause most people a lot of problems. And when you are your own boss, your biggest enemy is your own bad thinking. And that's part of the value that a lawyer brings to the table is lawyers are trained to be critical thinkers, analysts, they, the, the fundamental first skill that you ever learn in law school is issue spotting. Someone presents you a pattern of facts and you have to spot the key legal issues. That's, that's what it's all about is you spot what the issues are. And when you're briefing a senior attorney in your firm as a young associate, the formula, it's a formula. You spot the issue. You state what the rule is that's relevant. You analyze the facts in relation to the rule, and then you form a conclusion. It's the IRAC uh, format for briefs, and lawyers do that, and, and and we do it so much and so intensely that it becomes second nature to us. So as people are talking to us, we're listening for the issue. We are thinking about what rules are relevant here. We're analyzing the facts presented to us in light of that rule, and then we're drawing conclusions. We're making judgments that are 
designed to improve our client or the, our friend or our family members' lives uh, because our job is the zealous representation of what's in our client's best interest. Not what they want, but what's in their best interest. And sometimes what they want is not what they need. And that was a big challenge for me as an entrepreneur and a lawyer early on because people would come to me for things that they wanted. And after listening to them, I would very quickly realize that that's not in fact what they needed. And they would come to me for things like business formation. And I'd think, well, I have bills to pay, you know, yeah, I can form a company for you and let me find the best way to form a company for you. And ultimately I did so much of that that I wrote a book, How to Structure Your Business for Success. That was all about, okay, if you're contemplating starting a business and you want to form a business, here's the way to think about. And the, really the book is not about how to actually get it done yourself because it's not a DIY book. And the biggest takeaway from the book is don't do it yourself. It's work with a lawyer to do it. But the book is really about how to think about business organization and how to structure how to structure that business for success. The biggest thing, like you, you don't even have to read the book if you've listened to this. It's The biggest thing is go and talk to a lawyer, listen to what they recommend, and then do that thing and really hire them to do it. Don't don't actually do it yourself. But here is enough information in the book to have an intelligent conversation with the lawyer to be informed, to understand what the advice that they're going to give you. But really, you, that's not something that people should do themselves. And because people were coming to me so frequently for business formation services, partly because I was putting myself in the path of entrepreneurs who are interested in startup. I mean, a lot of that's on me, right? But a lot of them were coming to that and that's not really what they needed long term what they needed long term was ongoing preventive legal support to keep keep them safe as they operate their business but they didn't want that they didn't want the ongoing commitment they didn't want to pay you know regularly for it and so we really had a tough nut to crack well how do we get these people who just say give me an llc and let me go and that's like saying sell me the rope to hang myself with um I don't know that that's really the best call. You know, I don't necessarily want to do do that. I, I don't want to put something potentially, you don't want to just put a gun in anybody's hand. You only want to put a gun in someone's hand if they're going to use it like every tool for, for the good of others to either protect someone in their life, you know, protect their life from a bad person or to hunt with and, you know, put food on the family, uh, food, on, food on the table for their family. Guns are tools. They're not inherently uh, like dangerous weapons. They can be used as weapons, but just about every tool. A hammer can be used as a weapon. A screwdriver can be used as a weapon. Guns are tools. And LLCs and corporations are also tools. And they can also be incredibly dangerous in the wrong hands or used incorrectly. You can hurt yourself by giving yourself a false sense of security, going on LegalZoom or whatever and forming your own LLC. And you think, great, I'm protected. All my personal assets are safe because I've formed a LegalZoom LLC. And you get out there and, and you don't use it correctly because you don't have any ongoing legal guidance and you end up hurt. And that's a shame. So what we started doing was offering business formation for free when you sign up for a year of our legal lifeline service. So if a startup will come to us and say, um, this is the business that we wanna start, we know that we're gonna need ongoing legal protection, especially in that first year when we're making a lot of early formative decisions. Um, you know, We'll pay you the fee for the, the annual ongoing protection. I say, great, I'll do your business formation for free. They still have to pay the state filing fees, which vary from state to state, but you know, we'll, we'll give you what you think you want for free if you'll just please buy what you need. It's basically what it comes down to. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think it, it's, it's important. Like, I think you bring up a really important point where like, yeah, people don't know what they need. Um, 
And, and, and it's something that like, you know, as I'm kind of figuring out the problem I want to solve and the people I want to help, that's what I'm really learning too, because I, I recently just put together a summit wanting to help you know, early stage entrepreneurs or people transitioning. Um, um, and I didn't know what, what the vehicle was, right? Like the summit for me was to bring the awareness to the problem and also kind of build, you know, a platform for myself. But that was my plan up until then. And afterwards I was like thinking, and I was deciphering, like, what do people need, right? Like they don't need more courses. There's a million and one courses on business out there already. They don't need more coaches either, right? Like if I were to compare myself to all the other, I, I of course don't have as much experience as a lot of them, right? But at the same time, there's so many, it's a million and one coaches. Um, that's not a need in the market. And um, after doing some research, actually, um, you know, with the people that went to the summit, I realized people were, were looking for community. But at the same time, it's just people don't know that they're looking for community. They want that, that feeling of togetherness and being a part of something bigger and working towards something as a collective. Um, so it, it's definitely important. And I'm sure like philosophy really played a role in you kind of figuring out because it takes that critical thinking. So I guess just to kind of segue into like um, um, executive LP, like when you were first like coming up with that whole idea, like did, were there any points in when you learned back in philosophy that kind of helped you kind of process and critically think in those moments to transform your practice into such a niche, like quite honestly, such a niche um, um, niche service you do in a, in a great sense where it's true because when you're, when you're, when you're at a certain size, you know, who you're targeting, when you're at a certain size of a business, there's only so much you can do with marketing. And there's only so much you can do or output to increase your profitability. And it's actually cool when you brought it up that like, when you're at that level where like, where are the, when the smallest little things mean the biggest gains, it's like legal is one of those departments that nobody thinks about. And even until I recently met you, I didn't really think about like, like, like your legal department being your profit center. So I'm, I'm just really curious for both me and my, our listeners, um, you know, like did anything you learned in philosophy kind of helped shape the way you were thinking as you were um, transitioning, as you were getting problem aware? I'm like, all the clients I'm working with are all suffering from like stuff that could have been prevented and saved them thousands of dollars. Um, obviously it takes critical thinking to kind of come up with a solution for that. I think so. I think the, the philosophy component of it manifests in profound but subtle ways i i think because because of that background it's just shaped my worldview and the worldview the mindset has a, a massive effect on on everything right so i was explaining to a, a guy the other day he asked me about um legacy and he asked me you know what's your what's your exit or what is what does this all look like at the end of the day for you? Like, what's the end state? And I asked him if he ever read Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Have you ever read that poem? I had to memorize it when I was a kid. And um, if you don't mind, I'll just share it. It's very brief. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
And I really feel that's utterly profound. That legacy is one of the biggest biggest reasons to start a business. And a lot of people ask about legacy. They ask about what you're trying to build and what you're trying to do. And maybe originally when I founded Executive LP, that was part of what I wanted too, like something that I wanted to make an impact and leave a mark and leave something behind after I am gone. Because every day I wake up thinking about the day that I'm going to die. I wake up every day thinking about lying on my deathbed and looking back at my life. I start every single day looking backwards from the day of my death. And I think about Ozymandias a lot. And I think about how um, nobody really ever leaves any lasting legacy because we are here briefly. Our time is short, and in the grand scheme of the cosmos, we are, um, what did the warden say in the Shawshank Redemption? The guy who escaped, he said, he's just up and gone like a fart in the wind, right? And I'm like, well, that's our life right there. We're just like a fart in the wind. I mean, we're nothing. We're, we're dust, and maybe this is just a little bit of Plato and Aristotle coming back. Um, but I think about all of that a lot, and, but it doesn't depress me. I'm not like, I'm not like Nietzsche in that you know nothing has purpose and that everything is futile and pointless and um, that existentially, like I'm not a nihilist. And I think there is this cultural nihilism that is really prevalent right now that is is super dangerous um, because it's it can lead to depression and suicide and th this philosophy um, is really. Uh, at the heart of what's wrong with a lot of our culture. Instead, I think we need to realize that it's the brevity of life, it's the finite quality of life that makes it valuable. If you lived forever, if you had it all, if you were immortal and everything, then nothing would be worth anything. Just like if money really did grow on trees, it wouldn't be worth anything. It would be worth what leaves are currently worth. Um, not a whole lot. So. I think we we think that we want things a lot. Maybe this is the theme of today's podcast episode. I don't know. But we think we want things. We think we want infinite money. We think we want infinite life. We think we want to start business, whatever. We think we want to build legacy. And we're wrong a lot of the time. And philosophy helped me really sort through all the wrong thoughts I had about what I thought I wanted. And it also helps me think through the wrong thoughts about what my clients think they want. It's that critical analysis of drilling down to what really gives you meaning and value and purpose in your life. What That's existential value defined. What is What gives you existential value in your life? What makes your life mean something? And I think for most people, it's doing their very best, being the very best version of themselves that they can be for the good of other people. That's what it is for me. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's funny you bring that up. Um, my first thought is like, where were you my whole life? Because like every day, you know, the thought that drives me forward, it's, it's crazy that when you brought it up, because the thought that drives me forward, especially on the days I want to quit, because it gets hard, as you know, there are so many days that you sit there and you know, you're in this position and you're like, what the heck did I work myself into? You know what I mean? Like, and there are times you sit there, you're like, 
you know, I don't think I'm the smartest person on earth, but sometimes you look at your situation, you're like, it felt right at that time. But then you you kind of take like a 30,000 foot view of it. You're like, holy crap, I kind of dug myself into this hole. It's, you know, I know that it's going to pay off, but like, I'm not sure. And I'm sure you, you've experienced doubts like that as well. Well, the American philosopher, Will Rogers, <laughs> said he's, he's a, a, a Western era entertainer. You know, he was in a lot of Westerns and stuff. Uh, he said, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. So I think a lot of a lot of us need that advice, right? We need to learn to quit digging. And it's hard to do that because there's this logical fallacy called the sunk costs fallacy. And when we're in for a penny, we go in for a pound. Uh, when we're in for a bit, we double down. And when we're wrong, we go wrong and strong. And that, I was seeing that a lot early in my practice. I was seeing a lot of, especially, and I don't want to, classify them as like small town small minded but there were there was a certain subset of small town people who who that was they saw their whole small town life as all of all of existence they really could not see past that and those people that tend to have a, li a very very limited perspective on the world everything is in microcosm so it's all amplified it's all bigger the smaller your perspective the more each individual thing you experience seems to matter if you have this really big global or cosmic perspective if you allow yourself to really think big then your individual experiences and problems everything you see them in the context of everything else and you realize just how small they really are just how little they really matter and while that might be depressing because you're, you're one of those tiny things um, I don't know. There's some reassurance in there as well that even though we are tiny, almost inf infinitely tiny in the grand scheme of the cosmos, still we are alive. That's something. I mean, that's that's a lot. Life is rare, I think. I mean, it certainly seems to be rare. I mean, I, just to look around our solar system, not super hospitable to life outside of our little blue-green marble. And so I think that that really does count for something. And I, I think it's important to have that big perspective because the people who have the small perspective, they tend to make big mistakes like doubling down on, on being wrong, being wrong and strong and saying, well, I may, I may have breached the contract, but if you ever want to get paid, you're going to have to sue me. You're going to have to take me all the way to court. That's not the way to be. That's a bad attitude for one thing. And for another thing, it's economically destructive. Aside from war, lawsuits are the single most economically destructive way to solve a problem aside from war just like war lawsuits and then like every other thing is a distant distant uh follower you can negotiate a compromise just two people in a room hey i'll do this if you'll do this are we good okay and you know it's a good negotiation if everybody walks away unhappy you know if, if one person walks away from the negotiation they're really happy they won that was not a negotiation they you know they just they just won the battle of wits there i mean but if everyone walks away a bit unhappy nobody gets everything that they want it's a good fair negotiation if that fails you can bring in a, a neutral third party to help you talk to each other you can have a mediation and if that fails you can take it to arbitration and all of those things negotiation mediation arbitration we call them alternative dispute resolution they're all much better than a lawsuit and I, I would say, please, please, please avoid lawsuits. Now, that said, sometimes you have to stand and fight. Sometimes there's a bully on the playground and the only way to get him to back down and to keep your lunch money is to punch him in the nose. That's all. That's just what it is. 
So, you know, don't be a coward and don't run from conflict. But at the same time, you know, don't just start rushing into fights and, and provoking fights with a, with a bad attitude that usually comes from a small, small mind and small thinking. Yeah, no, it's important. And I, I think that it kind of resonates with like things that I've been learning throughout this process where we're talking about success, we're talking about fulfillment, right? But at the end of the day, um, bringing it back to, you know, like thinking about what are your thoughts on your deathbed, right? On the day you die, it's like, I think the thing that we really strive for, and this is just my opinion on it, is that what are, what at the end of the day, is like, what are your thoughts when you're by yourself? You know I mean, like, well, in that, those final moments, I think that's all that matters. And that's why legacy is such a big thing. It's not because at the end of the day, what, what people remember us for is like, what do we remember us for when we lose control? Because I'm not here getting into like the afterlife and the whole spiritual side of things. Everybody has a different belief, but all I do know is at death is no matter what happens to you, right? No matter what your belief is, what happens in the afterlife, you're, you, you have no more control. And I think that that is what people are, are scared of death is because when it's all said and done, when we're still alive, we still have the power to control our destiny to a certain extent. We can make moves to change the path we're going in. But at the, but when we die, like we don't know what's on the other side. So to us, that's a loss of control. We can't change our like our conscious thoughts of ourselves at that point in time. So um, it's interesting you bring that up. So I that's what for this show, like I really firmly it's character, right? Yeah, yeah, character. You're talking. That's really in a single word. That's what you're talking about. What kind of character? Are you cultivating? And I think that there's a specific entrepreneurial character. Um, if I ever have time after writing Profit from Legal to sit down and write another book, I think the next one will be about entrepreneurial character because I think it's character that makes entrepreneurs. I think that's what makes entrepreneurs successful. And it, that might seem uh, reductive, but character, it, it comes from mindset and it incorporates like discipline and certain skills and habits. Character isn't just having a good moral sense or a moral sensitivity or, you know, having good values. That's not character. Anybody can, anybody can pay lip service to good values. It's character is what happens when you, when you're by yourself and nobody's watching and you'll never get caught. You'll never get caught. You can get away with it. All right. Now, what, what do you do? Well, I'm just not the person who would take take something that doesn't belong to me, or I'm just not the person that would, you know, say something behind someone's back, even if I, I thought I could get away with it or whatever. I'm, I have good character. It's my own moral standards or my own ethical standards that keep me on the right track. That's character. And I think on each person's deathbed to look back, they really you know, whether they're accountable to a higher authority or not, whether they feel accountable to a higher authority or not, they are accountable to themselves. And they know, I think most people know if they're not, if they're not clinically insane, they know whether or not they have good character and they can't really lie to themselves about that. And the, the life well lived comes down to knowing that you're a good person not just like reaffirming, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, like a mantra, like telling, trying to persuade yourself you're a good person, but actually not having to do that because you know you are. And I think like have, knowing I did my best, I lived a life of service for others. Every day, every day that I showed up, I brought value with me. You know, those are the hallmarks of good character, at least entrepreneurial character, I think. And I told a client, um, earlier just this week actually or prospective client i think he's gonna hire me he said he was he said he was we'll see um i said don't hire me if you wouldn't trust me with a blank check i want blank check trust that's what i want from all my clients and if you're not going to give me blank check trust 
don't hire me. Because the relationship only works. I mean, the relationship with a lawyer only works, like the relationship with a doctor or the relationship with the confessor priest, right? If you're there in the confessional and you're going to lie to the priest about what you did or didn't do that week, guess who's not getting, you know, absolution? It's you, and you did it to yourself. I mean, it wasn't anything. The priest isn't there like, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, uh, invoke the absolution of the church on your behalf. It's that you didn't confess your sin. You did, You weren't honest. You weren't uh, upfront about it. And it only works if you're honest. If you go to the doctor and you don't tell them about your aches and pains, how can they prescribe you medicine? And if you don't go to your lawyer and say, yeah, this is the way I'm running my business, how can they give you good advice? How can they help you structure your business for success? How can they help you profit from what you're doing? How can that, that relationship work if there's not absolute honesty and absolute trust? And so I tell my clients, look, I need blank check trust from you. If you wouldn't trust me with a blank check, this isn't going to work. So don't waste your money and don't waste my time. For sure. Um, it, it's really interesting you, bring, you, you go with that approach because that's what a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, turning away business. But it, it, you know, it takes a level of consciousness to, to be able to make those decisions. And that's why like, um, I'm a firm believer now. It's like society likes to paint success you know, in a way of like having money, you know, having um, people around you, having the fame, the clout, um, the nice things, right? But like, for me, what's success, what I've learned. If that's success, why did Heath Ledger kill himself? Well, exactly. And I if that's success, why, did, why, have all of, why are all of these really wealthy, really famous people, why are they so miserable? It's a tragedy. I'm not trying to, like, it really deeply bothers me. Suicide deeply bothers me. Mental health really matters to me. I'm organizing, like, mental health charity events for later this year and things. It's a big cause. I, I'm not, I don't say that to toot my own horn, but it, I say it and I bring those tragedies up because they deeply, deeply bother me. If, if wealth and fame and all of that is success, why are so many successful people so miserable? Because that's not success. It's not. That's just, they got ahead materially. They got, you know, they reached career fame and everything, but they didn't have the existential value. They didn't have the meaning and the value and the purpose. And I've, conversely, I've been to third world countries um, where some of the poorest people who literally have nothing and are living in buildings that look like they've been just bombed out, right? Um, they're happy. They smile. And it's not because they're poor. That That's a struggle for them. They're happy because they have things in their life and people in their life that give them meaning and value and purpose, whether it's faith or hope or a job or a family or a friend, whatever it is, it can be the simplest thing. Humans can survive on the smallest scrap of hope, which is another amazing thing about us. But you have to find something that gives you meaning and value and purpose and money. It will make being miserable a lot easier, but it won't make you any less miserable. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And that's why I'm a firm believer. Success is really about becoming the person you need to become. Um, like, you know, like building a higher consciousness, because the more the, the more conscious and aware you are, the more control you have over your life. And the more control you over your life, then you're, you're, you know, you break out of that victim mentality, and you can actually decide the, the direction you want to go. Um, and speaking of consciousness, it's, it's been, I think this is why we get along so well. It's because, you know, plan to fail, profit from legal, they're both very, you know, oxymoronic, like titles, in a sense. Um, yeah, it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. People don't think of profiting from legal. Yeah. yeah. They think, uh, oh, I'm going to throw my money into the legal black hole and I'll never see that dollar again. But really, that's just because they don't know how to use the tool. And if we 
come into their business and, and set up a legal operations function in their business that uses the key performance indicators, then they'll start to be able to measure the performance of the legal department. They'll, they'll, they'll know how to use that service, and that's where the magic of profit from legal comes from. Plan to fail, you know, very, very similar type of approach where it is counterintuitive, but if you um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst and you really put the emphasis on preparation, you know that failure is part of the process. Part, it's a short-term part of the overall process of succeeding in life at becoming the person that you want to be. I, I love what you're doing. I love Thank your you. brand. I totally get it. <laughs> no, like, and same, and same for me. I think like, that's what makes, you know, your practice so intriguing to me is because it's always about challenging the status quo. It's always about challenging people's beliefs and helping them see it in a different way, because like, there's a million and one ways to do something, but you know, like we, we all like how I like to see it is like, we all like we're randomly placed in a society and we take in all of the values and the belief of that society without ever questioning it. And, you know, like kind of seeing my growth and, 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 and seeing that like how even wanting to help some of my friends, like that's when I started realizing like there, that's when I started really experiencing the benefits of mindset of consciousness. Cause at first it's such a meta topic sometimes like, what do you mean expanding your brain, expanding your mind? right? It's about being aware and noticing things and being aware of your own like consciousness and that it has its own like uh, vices and its own um, down um, downfalls too. But uh, it's so yeah, like super impressed. There really should be professional philosophers, right? Like that should be a that should be a thing. Um, you shouldn't just be, you know, I, I want to hire a philosopher. What for? Well, I just seem to be having all these problems with my life. I I can't seem to work out Thursdays. Like all of my Thursdays just seem off. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to go hire a philosopher. Uh, Douglas Adams, who's a really famous um, British humorist, uh, sadly died at 55 of a heart attack long before his time. But he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in that book, he humorously, sort of ironically, pokes fun at philosophers, and uh, it's one of the things that makes him my favorite author. Um, but he talked about how the uh, the uh, philosophers had all planned to, to go on strike because these, these people were creating a, a computer that would give them the ultimate answer of life, the universe, and everything. And the philosophers were all saying, that's our job. You're taking our job with this computer. They were, they were worried about being automated out of a job, and so they all threatened to go on strike. And that just doesn't that doesn't really seem scary. Like if all the philosophers went on strike, what would you have? And the more I think about that question, the more I think, well, you, you would pretty much just have what we have now, right? It's, it's as if all the philosophers went on strike and nobody's thinking about their life anymore. And now we're in this cultural mess. And it's like, someone please talk to the philosophers union, get these guys to come back and get them to start like helping people think about their lives in a more critical way we, that we need it. We need it like in schools, we need it personally. And um, I really feel like there should be more demand for professional philosophers. And I, I think for, for want of demand for professional philosophers, people turn to entrepreneurship. They're really looking for meaning and value and purpose in some a way that they can serve others and they find a, a mode of service or they find the the expression of their philosophy and you know when you think about it that's what monks have been doing for thousands of years that's what they you know they would find a certain like there's a bunch of monks down in louisiana and they just make caskets you know and i think that's just really profound they make caskets they're simple they're plain they're cheap um, it really made all the funeral directors down there mad, you know, because they're like, well, we have to compete selling caskets with these cheap bastards over here. 
Um, you know, and but the monks are super cool with it. They're like, look, this is just an act of service. This is just the way we keep the lights on. But really, we live this life of contemplation that should inspire others. And why? Why? I think a lot of entrepreneurs do the same thing. They they find something that they can do to keep the lights on because they're really living a life of of contemplation. The entrepreneurs are the modern day philosophers, or they're the only people who aren't so caught up in the rat race of climbing the corporate ladder and all of that, that, you know, can really devote themselves full time to that, that kind of life. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're not living that sort of philosopher life, I, why not? I just, I can't encourage you enough to do that. And if King can be a resource, you know, as a guest on the podcast, I know I probably sound super biased saying this, but if he can be a resource to help you start thinking in that way, I mean, it's one of the things that I've loved about talking to him, you know, in our private conversations, you, you helped me, you challenged me to think that way even more. Thank you. There's a couple of things I do want to bring up um, as we wrap up. Um, but to add on your point, it's interesting because like now, now like the, the more I kind of go on this entrepreneur journey, I'm seeing like every business owners view themselves as an entrepreneur, but like, you know, I was in finance. I thought I was an entrepreneur, but I was just you know, pushing somebody else's product. You know what I mean? That you're running a business at that point in time. Because like, like you said, it's, there's a philosophical aspect to entrepreneurship, wanting to challenge and make it better and innovate. But like so many people end up following the paths that's already been carved, following in other people's footsteps, thinking they're entrepreneurs, but like you're a business owner for sure. But I feel like entrepreneurs, like what you're doing, right? You're pushing it. You're, you're trying to challenge it and create something and innovate in that industry. And just like like legal is the same thing as finance. It's so archaic that this is why I'm so impressed by what you're doing and the value you're adding because um, legal is very important, especially, you know, as an entrepreneur, that's your baby, that's your life's work. And it's crazy to think that most people don't protect themselves, you know, like properly, um, especially if it's the thing that they're putting like 16 hours a day for the last five years and not putting the right, you know, like legal parameters in place to protect themselves. So I... Segwaying to my next question for you is like, do you have an example, like just like something that could have been prevented just to give our audience an understanding of what you mean by like preventable um, um, scenarios when it comes to um, the legal legalities of your business? Yeah, so, so many. Um, before I give my example, though, that what you said just triggered a couple of things is people don't realize that uh, an entrepreneur is the person who organizes and operates the business and they take on greater than normal financial risks to do so. That's the definition. They're not just the business runner, business operator. They're the ones with the most skin on the game and they take on greater than normal financial risk to do it. In other words, they own it. It succeeds or fails on the back of their efforts. Um, it also made me think of a Scott Adams. I think it was a Dilbert um, cartoon. And he, they were talking about, um, he was he, he, I wish I could remember exactly how it went. But anyway, he was talking about how if people knew what they were doing if they, you know, it was all about innovation. If they knew what they were doing, they would be experts. But it's because they don't know what they're doing that they're entrepreneurs. They don't, you know, they don't have all the answers. They're on that quest to figure it out, to work it out, to innovate, to do something that hasn't been done before. If you're doing something that's been done a million times before and you're just following a formulaic approach, you're not an entrepreneur. Uh, you might you might be a franchisee, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's tons of great franchise businesses out there. They employ tons of people, and they're necessary. There's nothing wrong with having a system. It's just not what entrepreneurship is. I'm just drawing a distinction. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just making the distinction there that if, if you are the master of an of existing knowledge, then you might be an expert. 
But if you are pioneering new frontiers in business knowledge, then you, you're probably an entrepreneur. That's the difference. Um, to think of a couple of examples of where legal has helped uh, in a preventive way, I'll, I'll throw two out there. And I'll throw out one uh, from a person who paid me and one from a person who did not pay me. The person who did not pay me called me up and said, I have about $9,000 in net worth and I'm a property scout and here's my situation. I'm being sued by this real estate investment company because they stiffed me for half my fee and I went and put a, I recorded a lien on one of their, their properties that I had scouted for them um, because they didn't pay my fee. And I was like, well, that was a huge mistake. You're, that's not, you can't do that. I mean, you can go and sue them for breach of contract, get a judgment, and then record the judgment as a lien against the property. But you can't just go and like put a lien on someone's property. And I said, so why are you getting sued? And he said, well, they were used, trying to use that property as part of a portfolio of real estate assets um, to you know leverage this much bigger deal. And because there was a lien on the property. They weren't able to use that property and they had to find substitute capital and it cost them about a quarter of a million dollars. So I'm being sued for $250,000 and I have a net worth of $9,000 and I'll, I can't foresee having a quarter of a million dollars in the near future, maybe ever. And things are just, you know, terrible right now for me. And I said, cool. I don't do that ever again. Don't just don't ever do that. And you know what? If you had called me in advance and said, "Hey, can I do this?" If you just said, "Hey, I have a quick question, 5 minutes. Can I do this?" I'd say, "No, you can't." And and then you wouldn't be getting sued for a quarter of a million dollars. If you just ask a question from an expert, someone who knows, go to, turn to the expert. They're the ones who are masters of established knowledge, right? Uh, turn to the expert, ask them your question, listen, and then follow their advice. It really is just that easy. And if you had done that, you probably could have done that for free and you wouldn't be getting sued for a quarter of a million dollars. And he was like, cool. And I said, honestly, man, um, you're, you're guilty. Like what you did, you're guilty of what they're accusing you of. Like there's no way out for you. You did the thing that you were not allowed to do you it was wrong you injured them you cost them the money the only question now is damages so if i were you i would go and beg for mercy and try to settle with them personally but i wouldn't even hire a lawyer to do it i would just go and personally apologize admit that you were wrong address yourself to the person that you were working with that you had a relationship with at that business Acknowledge that you were wrong. Take every step you can to correct it. To, you know, lift the lean, whatever you can do, and just ask for mercy because that's all that—that's your only hope. Otherwise, they're going to get a judgment against you, and you might as well file for bankruptcy. You're done. Now, the other guy, a happier story. Um, he did—he did hire me. He hired me to do a mergers and acquisitions transaction. And the other, the target company, he was the buyer, he's kind of a turnaround guy. And the um, target company was organized as an S corporation. And in any kind of corporation, and this is particular to US law, your mileage may vary if you're in a different jurisdiction, but in, in any corporation in the United States, the shares are securities and are regulated under both state blue sky laws and the federal securities regulations. So if you want to transfer ownership of those stocks to any other person, 
you have to comply with the securities regulations. And doing that is very expensive. Even if you just want to file a, a Form D notice filing because you're exempt from the, from the regulations, you're exempt from registration of the transaction or the securities, you still have to file a Form D notice filing with the SEC and then file a copy of it in each state where a relevant participant in the transaction resides. And so the legal fees for that and the state registration costs can add up, even though the SEC doesn't charge a fee, a fee for the Form D notice filing. We probably shouldn't say that too loud. It might give them ideas. But anyway, um, I told the other lawyer in this transaction because he wanted, you know, they wanted to structure the purchase of this target company as a an equity deal. I said, well, typically this is done as an asset deal. And he goes, I know. And he seemed very put out that I pointed that out. And he, I said, well, I don't know what you know or don't know, and I don't make those kinds of assumptions. So I'm just kind of wondering why you want to do this as an equity deal. And he said, well, all the assets of the business are leveraged to the hills. Like there's nothing nothing really left. They're just that leveraged. And the only thing worthwhile in the business is like the customer list and the goodwill and some some intangible properties of uh, assets of the business. And you know, there's if someone could come in within a fresh injection of capital, you could turn it around and make it something, but you know, that's going to be a lot of work. And I was like, okay, well that explains why my guy's involved because that's what he does. He's a turnaround guy. Um, so I said, well, if we're going to do this deal, it needs to be done right. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you need to convert that S corporation to a member managed limited liability company. You, you have a small number of shareholders, very few people involved. It's, it would be very easy to just convert the entity, same EIN, same everything. So it's just the type of entity that gets converted. When you convert that corporation to the member managed LLC, all of the LLC interests are, are treated more like general partnership interests, ownership interests. They're, they don't fall under the definition of a security for securities law purposes. So it's just like technical workaround. If you just convert the entity from an S corporation to a member managed, and it's important that it be member managed LLC, then the securities regulations will no longer apply. And that will drop the transaction costs you know, the regulatory compliance costs, the legal fees, and so on significantly in this deal. He was like, well, I've been practicing law since 1988. You know, you were six years old when I got my law license. And I was like, cool, I really don't care how long you've been doing it the wrong way. It's just more important that we do it the right way this time. Because if we don't do it the right way this time, my guy's going to walk. And so I, I can't do a deal because you're, you're not even suggesting filing a Form D notice. He didn't even want to do any of that. He didn't want to comply with any of the securities regulations. And I said, well, that's just straight up illegal. I'm not going to sanction that. I'm not going to tell my client to participate in that transaction. And we're just going to go buy a different company and fix, them, fix their problems and move on with our lives. And you'll be stuck here with this dying company. That's just kind of like collapsing in on itself like a neutron star. And so he didn't like that, you know. I just, I don't waste a lot of time pulling punches. I mean, I tried to say it as nicely as I could. I didn't put it in exactly those words the first time, but eventually we got to the point where I was like, look, here's the rub. We're not gonna, we're not gonna violate the securities regulations and I don't care how long you've been doing it that way. It, it, just cause you've done it that way for a long time doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it. And he's like, well, I've never had a problem. And what he means is no one else found that it was worth fighting over enough to report it to the SEC or sue somebody. 
That's what he means when I, I've never had a problem. Just doing something illegal, whether or not you get caught, is a problem if you have good character. Re refer back to, you know, character is what happens when you're by yourself, you know, and you don't think you're going to get caught. That's what character is. That's what ethics is. And that's what it means to do the right thing. You're not doing the right thing unless you're doing the right thing the right way every single time consistently. And people say, that's too high a standard. You're, you're a perfectionist. And I'm like, well, okay. If I'm a perfectionist, if that's what being a perfectionist is, then I'm a perfectionist. Oh boy, how sad that makes me. Not really, because it really protects my clients. And so my client said, okay, we're, we're walking. Because it, old boy didn't want to play by the rules. So we walked. And it saved my client $1.5 million dollars. That, that transaction, was, that was roughly the purchase price for this um, small company. And uh, that single transaction would have been void, ab initio, void as if it had never happened at all. And what, if anyone ever had a dispute, if anyone reported it to the SEC, if anyone ever filed a lawsuit, if anyone just looked at it sideways, you would have to undo that deal as if it had never been done, put everybody back in the position that they would have been had the transaction not happened. And... You know, the other lawyer was billing by the hour, just worried about his time. He didn't want he didn't want to hear a suggestion that would reduce his hourly billings. That wasn't in his best interest. But there there are lawyers that have their own best interests in mind as their primary concern, and then there are lawyers that have their clients' best interest in mind as their primary concern. As an entrepreneur or any kind of business owner, you should only ever hire the second kind. You should only ever hire the lawyer that has your best interests in mind as their primary concern, that they're zealously, they're committed to zealously representing their client's best interest, even when it means having to disagree with you, even when it means coming to you and saying, you know, what you're trying to do is illegal or what you're trying to do is a bad idea or whatever. And I, you, you might fire me for giving you this advice you don't want to hear, but it's the right advice. It's the right call and I care about you and I respect you enough to be honest with you. And it's those kinds of lawyers that deserve your blank check trust. And if you don't have blank check trust with your lawyer, you need a different lawyer. And so clients that, that hire me and trust me, I'm able to save them a lot of money. My client paid me less than $40,000 for, for my work on that case for that my work in that matter it was less than that to save them 1.5 million dollars it was an enormous profit enormously profitable transaction for him and he went on and bought a different business and turned it around it's doing well i mean it's a happy end to the story i mean they're they're just because you like you might say well no you blew up the deal well no the deal was dead it was dead on arrival the deal couldn't happen because the way they were going to structure that deal it was already void they were just going to go through the motions and somebody was going to get hurt. And so I, I just stopped that from happening. I don't stop live deals. I don't stop good deals from happening, but I will stop a bad one. But the things that I'm most proud of are being able to make good deals happen uh, for my clients and help them make good business decisions. And when they listen to good advice, it tends to be very profitable for them. And if they have the profit from legal service that we offer, it's easy for them to measure that benefit in terms of real dollars and understand what the contribution to their bottom line is that we're making. 
Yeah, no, I think it, it's it's really important. I think that's the thing that, you know, as you were sharing those experiences, I think that was the perfect example and illustration why you should hire help. Because as I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm kind of following along, but you're telling you're like this this department, that form, and I'm like, at some point, I'm like, I have I have like a lawyer, a professional, explaining this to me, and I'm still like question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, and I think it's beautiful that like you, you painted that. You think you explained it really well that you no, know, like the benefits are there, but it's true. It's like, so even when you do have a professional explain it to you, there's so many like little things, nuances that, you know, you, you can miss. And one misfilled form could be thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, you know, for you to, to fix that up. No one person can know everything. No, no one person can know everything. And I mean, you really shouldn't. When people come to me for business formation, one of the first conversations we have is about their org chart. And uh, I have I have a good buddy named Brent Lowe who's kind of blowing up the traditional org chart um, and replacing it with these um, lead leadership teams. I think his book is called Lead Together, but that's his whole shtick: is let's lead together. Let's you know, like we can have collective leadership. We can have almost. It's not democracy, so I'm probably do, not doing it justice, but. Um, you can look up Brent Lowe and, and look at what he's doing with corporate hierarchies. It, it's really neat but to see them all working together in collaborative ways to lead teams together and not just be like straight hierarchy led. But even if you are in that traditional corporate hierarchy system and model, or if you're just starting there as a starting point, um, it's important that you have, and I think even Brent would agree with this, different people who are accountable and responsible for different functions of your business and not to cross the streams to borrow a Ghostbusters reference, right? You really want to keep things separated, your executive function, separate from the operations function, separate from the finance, separate from marketing and sales. And really, if you can separate marketing from sales, and when I say separate, I mean, obviously, they all have to work together, but they're all distinct and different. Legal, you know, all of these things, human resources, and to have individual people, separate people who are accountable for each one. The benefit of doing this is you get the wisdom of the crowd for one thing. For another thing, you have, you know, clear accountability and your team is, is focused and less stressed because they have one thing to do really, really well, rather than trying to go a millimeter in a million different directions. Right. Right. And I think honestly, at the end of the day, the key takeaway I would say from our whole conversation is really... Hire a lawyer that you can trust with a blank check. I think that is like is one of the most simplest thing. And I think that that for me, at least, that was the main takeaway. It's it's so true. You need to have that trust like because, you, you know, it, it's stuff that you don't understand for the most part. So you need to know you need to have someone by your side that you know that they are they do have your best interest and they are communicating everything that needs to be communicating to you. Right. And even if that means making less money for the lawyer or you no know, disagreeing with the client, I think. Um, that like most people look at the acumen, oh, they graduated from this law school or they, they won this many cases. But at the end of the day, right, that's, that it doesn't matter. It, it, do you like working? Do you trust the guy you're working with? And I think that um, for everybody who matters a little bit, it matters a little bit. Like I, I didn't go to Harvard law or anything like that. Like my law school, <laughs> I think is kind of far down the rankings. It's a, it's a, a really good trial law school. They win all kinds of like, um, mock trial competitions and things like that. So they're they're known as a trial lawyers law school. Um, it does matter where you go and and the legal acumen of your attorney. But so I have to kind of correct that a little bit. But at, if they pass the bar exam, and if they have a passion for entrepreneurship, and if you feel confident that they know what they're talking about and they have a decent success record, they can tell you about 
good results that they've gotten for their other clients. If, you, in other words, if you have reasons to believe them that are that are reasonable and justifiable, and they pass the the logical sniff test and the cognitive biases sniff test, then that's fine. the 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 big core takeaway is don't don't do it yourself. That's the number one biggest mistake. Like, don't try to don't try to do all your own work as CEO, CFO, COO, head of marketing and sales all in one. I wear all the hats and look at me, I can multitask and I'm so good at multitasking. Every time someone tells me I'm good at multitasking, I think I'm not working with you ever in any in any capacity. I'm not working with you. I don't want you I don't want you on my team as an employee. If I interview an employee and I say, "What do you think your, your some of your strengths are?" You know that that old chestnut. They say, "Well, I'm really great at multitasking." I'm like, "Done. Next." I want people who do one thing phenomenally well, because number one, I need the focus and clarity of what can I come to you for? What problems can I come to you to solve? And then I also need to know that they're not trying to be a jack of all trades and master of none. I want them to do what they do really, really, really well. Niching is important. And it's important as entrepreneurs, you know, for us to pick a niche. That's why I'm so hyper niche focused in preventive legal services for businesses. That's it. That's all I do. And most of my clients, you know, our ideal client is five to 15 million in revenue, right? Like it's a pretty narrow niche and we want to help them grow and scale their business. And, you know, if, if a, a business is smaller than that, we can help get them into that tier if that's their goal. You know, we can we can work with just about anybody. Um, but we are we are niche in our focus because we want to do that one thing for our ideal customer, our ideal client, very, very, very well. So make sure your lawyer is that focused. If they are, you know, yeah, I do some uh, wills, trust, and estates work, or I, I, you know, the occasional DUI or a divorce. Maybe don't have that guy do your. Maybe don't have that guy structure your LLC or your corporation. It, he might not be the best fit for that for registering your intellectual property or working with you to to manage your vendor and supplier relationships and that sort of thing. It just might, might not be the best fit. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, all really good points, but Noel, I really want to just thank you uh, for taking the time being on the show. It's you know, just hearing your story, your expert, it, it, like just hearing your expertise and your story has really shifted my perspective. I and mean, even the first time having that private conversation with you, like it really shifted the, I remember coming out of that call, I was like, holy crap, like I've never thought about that. And I think it, and, and I think as I, and I'm, I'm a person that likes to ponder and I just like, you know, things just kind of come, come and go as, and then like, I, I kept thinking about it. I'm like, it's true. Once you get to a certain size, like I like the limitations to grow your marketing, to grow your reach. Like, you know, you've already went through your hot market, your warm market, and you're trying to reach out to the cold market and bring new customers and that will work. That will grow slowly. But like, this is another avenue that, you know, bigger businesses, more established businesses can pursue because it might not be as beneficial for someone smaller starting up because there's a lot of growth up front for the market, but especially the, the bigger you get, the more important it is. Well, you grow, you grow through asset development and you grow through partnerships. Those are the two keys to growth. And my friend, Kevin Valley, if you, if you tune into the Profit From Legal podcast, we just did published an episode with Kevin Valley. He's got a brand called Become Investable. And what he does is business valuations. He puts values on businesses for a living. People hire him to do valuation on their business. And Kevin says that uh, value is a, a function of two things, growth and risk. And I asked him directly, I was like, so lawyers just make a huge difference because we contribute to both of those things. We contribute to the development and protection of assets in huge ways. And we develop to, I mean, we also contribute to the development of those partnership relationships in your business. It's the assets and the partnerships that grow your business. 
Lawyers are huge force multipliers for both of those things. And then risk, I mean, that's what everybody always thinks of when they think of lawyers, right? They think of the risk mitigation. They think, have the contract, policies and procedures, regulatory compliance, pre-litigation, alternative dispute resolution, all those things. Everybody's like, hey, yeah, okay, it's easy to classify lawyers in the, the risk management category. What they don't think of right away often is the value side of it, the uh, growth side of it. And so I would say even for a startup, even for a boutique business or a lifestyle business or whatever uh, label you want to stick on it, uh, lawyers are a huge, immensely valuable um, person or professional to work with because they will directly contribute to the value of your business by bumping your growth through asset and partnership development um, and also bumping your value by mitigating your risk. Yeah, no, no, 100%. Um, so honestly, everybody, for everybody who's listening to this, um, if you found value in what Noel had to share today, just make sure you check out his free legal profitability scorecard. Um, that will actually help you evaluate your legal support provider's performance. It honestly only takes 10 minutes for you to complete. And in the spirit of over-delivering, there will actually be two free downloadable gifts waiting for you on the results page once you complete the scorecard. And on top of that, once you complete the scorecard, there's also going to be a link for you to book a quick chat with a friendly lawyer for additional insights on your scorecard. As you know, um, the first step to change is just being aware of the problem. And the scorecard really, the purpose of it is really for that, is to for you to understand where you could be improving um, um, in your legal support. Um, so, you know, it's free. It only takes 10 minutes. You might as well check it out for your business to see where you can improve on, because if you don't even know where the problems are, you can't really fix them. But um, Noel, what's the uh, best platform for our audience to follow you on? Uh, the best platform is, is LinkedIn. Um, I will say one, I just add, you, you said everything just right about the legal profitability scorecard. One of the things that, that I always hear at networking events is, oh God, I'm so glad I haven't needed a lawyer yet. You know, and I'm like, oh, well, you don't realize the need. But a lot of that comes from not knowing what a lawyer would do in your business. If you take the legal profitability scorecard, the questions that it asks you, have you talked to your lawyer about this? Has your lawyer done, done that? Do they regularly do this for you? All those questions will reveal to you what use a lawyer would be to you in your business. And even if you get a 0%, which you won't, but you know, you're almost certainly, even if you're just doing some things yourself, almost certainly you'll, you'll land somewhere on the positive side of the scorecard above a zero. And uh, you will definitely gain a better understanding of what it is a lawyer should regularly be doing for you in your business. And that's the knowledge that I think is most beneficial from the profitability scorecard. And of course, you can connect with me through that to deep dive. But so the scorecard is really the best in into legal profitability. It's the best way to get started. It's the best way to connect with me. But if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on LinkedIn. And I'm sure King will put a, a link to my profile in the show notes. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I'll make sure to include the links to your website and to um, your social media platforms in the show notes. Um, Noel, I just really want to thank you for taking time being on the show. I've learned so much from you. I'm excited to continue to find new ways to collaborate with you. Yeah, man. It's, uh, the pleasure is all mine. I've really enjoyed the collaboration and I, I appreciate you giving me so much of your, your time on the podcast today. No, the pleasure is mine. I'm glad you reached out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Plan to Fail. Remember, you can achieve the life you've always wanted. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. And until next time, stay hungry.